putting things, there is a big challenge. And this section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, it has stepped on my toes. So if you feel that this morning, please know that the toe stepping starts back here and moves forward. Because this has really challenged my faith, my understanding. And as you'll see from what we're going to be looking at this morning, it really has just challenged my heart. What would it take in your life to call out selfishness? What would it take? You see, each of us have desires, wants, temptations, and they're unique to each of us. I can't get up here and tell you all of the things that each of us might be tempted by. You are the only one who knows exactly what your desires are, what you're tempted by, what it is that motivates you to act. Only you. Now, of course, God knows. God knows our hearts. But only you know. Even your closest friend doesn't know your deep desires. Not your husband. Not your parents. You know. And this morning, the challenge to you is to expose those in your own heart and to call out the selfishness in our lives and humble ourselves before God. Let's start by reading James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, at first glance and at first reading, I'll tell you, I was a little excited about this text because I was like, ooh, this is a throat puncher. And that's like right up my alley. (laughs) I love to be punched in the throat by scripture because that shows me, oh, I've got some, I've got some growth to do. But as I dug into this text, what I found was that, yes, it does kind of punch your throat. (laughs) But in a way that only the word can, it lifts you up. And there is so much grace and goodness in this text. And I'm excited to study that this morning. I have a four-point outline that I have broken this text up in because that is the only way I understand how to dig into textual studies. I first have to outline it for myself. So the first point that I have this morning is that desire breeds wars, not wisdom. Selfishness, not supplication. And that is going to be from verses 1 through 3. Desire breeds wars, not wisdom. Selfishness, not Supplication. If you go back to what Brooke talked about yesterday, in verses 15, 16, 14 even, 
talking about this bitter envy, self-seeking, and earthly wisdom, and she covered that so well. This is what we're talking about in, in chapter 4 at the very beginning. We're, we're back to this earthly wisdom. And so he says, where do the wars come from? Okay, well, you haven't, you haven't taken on that wisdom that's or heavenly from verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. No, you're back in this earthly, carnal realm. Where do the wars and fights come from? Well, selfishness. It comes from you. It comes from what you want, your pleasures. In the English, 12 times in verses 1 through 3, the word you is used. You, 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 your, your, your. It's all about you and what you want. Now, in the Greek, it's used six times. Still an emphasis here on what you want and what you feel. And that is why there is conflict. Because when it is all about you, there can be no peace. And I see that in three ways. If it's all about you, there can't be peace with yourself. Look at verse 2. You lust and do not have lust that's your specific desire as christians we are striving to keep those lusts and desires under control it's not a sin to be tempted jesus was tempted but what we do is we say no <laughs> when the temptation comes we say no but the problem is if all we ever say is no no, no, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. Then our mind, it's going to either become angry, <laughs> it's going to become anxious, or it's going to become rebellious. Instead, what we have to do is allow the word of God to change our desires, to change the pleasures that we have, so that we see sin for what it really is, that it is disgusting because look at what it cost God. And I'm not drawn to that anymore. Because if I, if I constantly keep myself in this state of, I really want that, but no. I really want that, but no. I really want that, but no. We will eventually give in. Or we will just give it all up. It's not worth it. And so we have to allow the word of God to change our desires. Because if we continue to just dwell on our own lusts, you won't be at peace with yourself. But in the second, second place, there's not going to be peace with others. You murder and covet. You fight and war. The word wars here, um, it, it talks about kind of an overall conflict and then the fights, the specific battles. You're just going to be upset with everybody. <laughs> I see this the most often in my life, in marriage. <laughs> Here are two people who could not be more different. That's how God designed us, right? A man and a woman. And we come together, and guess what? We don't always think the same way. And uh, my husband and I have this running joke that he says, oh, because you're always right. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. I am generally right about it. Does that breed conflict if I'm always right and I'm married to someone who is very different? <laughs> yes, 
That's how conflict comes up. When I put myself above the needs of someone else, when my desire, when my opinion, when I have to be highly regarded, when I have to be seen, when my opinion matters the most, when things have to be done my own way, you're never going to have peace. Are we going to have peace in our congregations that way? When I'm the only woman who knows how to do this thing this way or teach this class this way? It's not about us. And when it is, there's not going to be peace. Instead, we will love. What does that agape love mean? It seeks the interest of the other, the object of the love. It's not about us. And we know, and we talked about yesterday, how will people know you're a Christian? By the love that you have. That love is going to sacrifice self and what I want for the other person. But ultimately, you don't have peace with God. And that comes in in the saddest phrases of these verses. You do not ask because you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Now, what does this mean? God doesn't hear me? No. In the first place, okay, you're not even asking. You're so caught up in yourself, you don't even see a need to pray. What do I need from God? I got this. You're so caught up in yourself and your life and what's going on, you just forget to pray. Forget to ask. Or... You, you don't receive what you ask for when you actually finally remember to ask God for something. Oh, you don't get it because what you've done is you've asked for yourself. You've asked so that you could maybe abuse or exploit God's power for yourself, to use it on you, to use it on your desires. The word spend here in verse 3, that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is the same word that's used when you talk about the prodigal son. Spending that money, squandering it. That's what they're doing here. You ask God for things so that you can spend it on yourself. But God's not going to give you those things. Because it's all about you. I want to ask you some questions. And they're just just for self-reflection, because again, today what we're trying to do is call out the selfishness in our own lives, and only we can do that for ourselves. Do you pray often? Do you pray often? Do you pray for God's will above all? Do you pray for your enemies? If you don't pray as often as you want to, examine your heart. Because this could be a symptom of feeling no need to pray. Because I feel comfortable in what I've got going on in my own life. Instead of recognizing our dependence and our need for God. Now, I have been (laughs) guilty of this because I feel like as a Christian... Can you pray enough? No. 
We could wake up in the morning and every breath that we take spent in prayer until we pillow our head at night and it still wouldn't be enough. But you know your heart. You know your prayer life. What's hindering you? What's motivating you? And if there is a problem, know that the problem is not with God. That it is our own selfishness. Let's move to point number two. And this is going to be from verses four and five. Friendship breeds infidelity, not intimacy. Opposition, not obedience. Verses four and five. Friendship breeds infidelity, not intimacy. Opposition, not obedience. James hits this one pretty hard. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? We've talked throughout this week that James is writing to primarily Jewish Christians. And it makes sense then that he would use this phrase adulterers and adulteresses because really that's hearkening back to the Israel and God relationship. Gentiles, they could be fornicators all day long, but the covenant relationship was between Israel and God. That marriage relationship. I've been reading recently in Jeremiah and as I was studying for this lesson, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 came up. And, and I thought, yeah, because here's, and we'll, we'll get to that again in just a minute. But Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah was writing to an adulterous people. And there are some vivid, there's some vivid imagery in Jeremiah about the adultery that they are committing. And James says, adulterers and adulteresses. What is the lie told behind the spouse's back? When adultery is being committed. We're just friends. We're just friends. And James says, friendship with the world? That's enmity with God. The word friendship is a close intimacy. A deep friendship. A dear friendship. Someone who is held in high esteem. But then this word enmity. Okay, you want to hold the world close? You want to be close? Does the world want to be dear to you? Okay. Well, adulterers and adulteresses, let's look at what that gets you. Enmity with God. Enmity, a reason for opposition. Closeness with the world puts distance between you and God. Here were Christians who were deceiving themselves. They thought... That they could walk this line. I claim Jesus. But also, you know, I have this life over here. 
And the world, you know, I could be popular with them. I could just keep doing what I've always been doing. <laughs> and don't we, aren't we tempted to that sometimes? To, to scoot as close to a line as we can? As long as we make sure we're, oh, I haven't crossed the line. No, that's friendship. And friendship with the world sets God against you. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So enmity with God is a reason for opposition, but being an enemy of God means that God is opposed to you. He sets himself against you as in a battle. Think back to the Old Testament battles. What can God do against a nation in battle? Can he send an angel and wipe out 185,000 of them just like that? Can he use a, a teenager with a sling and a stone and wipe out a giant who has been a fighter from his youth? God can annihilate people in a moment. Fire from heaven coming down and just swallowing people up. And James says, when you choose the world, when you choose whatever passion and desire that is deep within your heart, when that's what you choose, I want you to know something. What you're really choosing is to make God your enemy. I don't care what the world has to offer because the very best that the world has to offer, which at best could be what? A lifetime of pleasure? For what? God as my enemy? That is terrifying. And that's what friendship with the world is. And so they're deceived. They think they can flirt with the world over here and still claim God. But James says, you're wrong. That's adultery. You are in a covenant relationship with God. Anything else? Because he is holy? Because he is just? Anything else is not acceptable. No one is equal with God. No one deserves your allegiance. Because ultimately, divided allegiance isn't a thing. You are either a friend of the world or you are a child of God. And that's it. And you get to choose. God has reserved an eternal fire for his enemy, the enemy, right? God didn't create hell for, for people. It's for the enemy. And James says, when you decide to make yourself a friend of the world, what you're saying is, you know, I'd like a part of that. I think I'll take that enemy section over here. I'll, I'll choose that one instead. No, we have to be real with ourselves and choose God. Choose God. And so it makes sense then that the scripture goes on to say, do you not think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now there is no scripture in the Old Testament that says this. 
This is not a quote from the Old Testament. It's generally a, when a preacher gets up and he's like, the Bible says, and gives some kind of explanation of a Bible truth. Okay, well, there wasn't an actual verse he quoted, but he was talking about what the Bible says. Okay, the scripture says this. Over and over again, the scriptures play out. God is a jealous God. And God is jealous for you. But, but it's not the kind of jealousy that we have. You see, when, when I was dating my husband, I had some jealousy. You know, there were some other girls around, I and him, and I would get jealous. But that was an insecure jealousy. I was jealous because I was insecure. God isn't insecure. God loves you. And God knows you cannot and will not find something better. He wants you. He wants to keep you. He made you. He put his image in you. He wants to keep you. And so he doesn't want you to be friends with the world. He has a secure jealousy. He wants what's best for you. He wants to guard your heart from these adulterous pursuits. And he does that by pursuing you with a holy love. You are God's desire. You are. So what's your desire? What are your desires? Doesn't God deserve that we would desire him? After all that he has done, after all that he has given, after all that he has saved us from, choose God. Desire God. We need to feel more shame. Shame is like a word that in our culture is like, don't feel it. We don't want to feel it. We want to shame other people, but then we don't want to feel shame. We need to feel ashamed when we flirt with the world. When we provoke God to this jealousy. We should feel that shame. Because after all that he has done for us, don't flirt with the world. Don't flirt with the world. But then this gets really exciting to me. Verses 6 through 8. Point number 3. Grace breeds submission, not separation. Purification, not partial allegiance. Grace breeds submission, not separation, purification, not partial allegiance. Okay, James, you have really been punching my throat. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. But. Contrast word. But. The world offers eternal destruction. But God... God gives, the same word that's used in John 3, 16, God gives. God gave his son. God gives. God gives liberally. God gives good gifts. God gives. He gives more. Megas. Where we get our word megaphone. He gives more. He gives more what? He gives more punishment. Because we have been flirting with the world and we deserve it. 
He gives us more shame to feel so that we can just really grovel in it and know that we're the worst. He gives more grace, favor, loving kindness. The world, the world looks out for itself. Think back to the prodigal son. Okay, we've talked about, okay, we're using the word spend here. We're using the word squander. So we might as well just stick with the prodigal son. What did the friends do when the money ran out? Well, they ran out. Because the world wants what, you know, is good for them. But if you're not good for me anymore, okay, bye. <laughs> That's what the world offers. <laughs> it may seem good. It may seem like there could be pleasure involved. But really, the world wants to use and abuse us. Because it's all the world knows how to do. But God gives more Grace. The world looks out for itself, but God gives of himself. At his own expense, God gives more grace. Grace should lead us away from selfish rebellion and toward a saving relationship with him. So why then does it go into, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our pride is what sets us against God in battle. So we deserve wrath. Pride is taking the preeminence for ourselves. It's about me. It's about making me look good. The preeminence belongs to Christ and Christ alone. But if we will walk away from ourselves, we will be blessed. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God brings salvation that has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, okay, that's what we're supposed to be doing, quit being friends with the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. God gives grace to those who see themselves in a rightful position. God gives grace. And so resist, resist the devil. Submit yourself to God because he wants to give more grace. He loves you, but resist Resist the devil. Resist this friendship. The word resist means to set yourself against. So instead of setting yourself against God, making him oppose you because you're friends with the world, instead set yourself against the devil. And he will flee. It's okay. So it's possible if I set myself against the devil that he'll go away, that he will run. That the word flee means to seek safety by flight. 
I think we have a problem in our thinking sometimes. That the devil is somehow God's evil twin or something. That he has all this power and that he's everywhere and that he's eternal and that he's omnipotent and he can do just as much as God except he wants to do it in a bad way. And No. The devil is a coward. He is not God. He is nowhere near equal with him. He runs when confronted with God's power. If you resist the devil, listen, no offense to you. He's not afraid of you. (laughs) But what do Christians put on? Ephesians 6. Christian armor. But really, is it Christian armor? Or is it the armor of God? We put on God's armor. We're wearing God's armor. And when the devil sees us, it's not us he's afraid of. It's God's armor. (laughs) And he knows what he's up against. And he will flee. Don't feel trapped by your selfishness and your selfish desires. Don't feel trapped. You can overcome them. Not on your own will be God's power and God's grace. But the devil will flee if you will resist. Set yourself against him. As he flees, what we're doing is drawing near to God. To draw near means to bring bring near, to approach, to get closer... And I just want to take a minute to let this amazing promise sink in. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Our God promises that if we will draw near to him, he will meet us. Let's think back one more time to the prodigal son. What happens? What happens when the prodigal comes back? What happens? Is the father standing on the porch just waiting? I'm going to give him a piece of my mind when he gets back, and he'll have to grovel a bit. No. The father isn't waiting. The father is watching. And as the prodigal son starts coming, when the father sees him even a great distance off, what does he do? He runs to him. Draw near to God, and he will meet you. You don't have to go all the way. God will meet you as you draw near to him. But listen, approaching a holy God requires something of you. Think back again to the Old Testament and what it meant when the children of Israel were supposed to approach the mountain. And then they're like, I don't even want to do that anymore because that's terrifying. When we approach a holy God, we have to do some things. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands. Your hands reflect your life, your actions, your deeds. Clean up your act. Act better. Do better, you sinners. (laughs) Sounds a bit harsh, Why did Jesus come to earth? Jesus' own words to save sinners. Amen.
Jesus came to save me. And when I act like this, when I let selfishness come into my heart, when I start flirting with the world, Jesus died for me. And God will meet me and God will be there if I will cleanse my hands, clean up my act. Purify your hearts. This is the cleaning that comes from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We can approach God. We can have the confidence that we can approach him. when We will purify our hearts. Get the world out. And God is there. God is ready. You double-minded. Divided interest, one foot in, one foot out. We must find, we must find a singular focus. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is your singular focus? This is a battle. We are in a battle. And you either make yourself an enemy of God and all that entails, or you set yourself against the enemy wearing God's armor but you can't stand there in the middle. Or you won't get it from both sides. (laughs) So who do you choose today? Who do you choose? Seems like a no-brainer. Because the world takes, wants, murders, covets. God gives more grace. And so, verses 9 and 10 in our final point, knowledge breeds gloom not glory. Humility, not haughtiness. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Our knowledge of sin in our lives, our knowledge of selfishness in our hearts, it ought to make us lament and mourn and weep. That our be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. This is talking about recognizing sin in your life. What should that make you feel? It should make you feel shame. It should make you feel guilt. We shouldn't be proud of our sin. We shouldn't be proud of how skillfully we can hide it from those around us. We should lament And mourn. Our sin ought to make us sick. Because do you know what your sin cost God? It is so easy for me to look at scripture and be like, Ooh, this sin. Big sin, big sin, big sin, big sin. And look at what those sins cost God. And I skip this little sins. Envy. Backbiting. Skip those, because those are the ones I struggle with. (laughs) Those sins nailed Jesus to the cross. And while the cross can bring us joy because we know that our sins are forgiven, the cross, the cross just gives so many emotions because it also is devastating that Jesus had to suffer that. And so I want to mourn and lament, and grieve. But how do you do that without first excavating your heart, looking for the areas of selfishness 
calling them out and saying, this is selfish, this is against God, this is friendship with the world. And that put Jesus on the cross and it makes me sick. I won't have joy in my sin. And you know what? Don't let yourself off the hook for that. Don't try to make yourself feel better about your sin. So often we don't like to just kind of live in it for a minute. It's not up to you to pull yourself out of that because that's what verse 10 says. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and then get up and get at it. (laughs) No. And he will lift you up. We grieve our sins. And God picks us up. Holds us near. We praise and magnify him because of his amazing, greater grace. Megas grace that he gives to us. Even when we are tempted even when we become adulterers and adulteresses, when we acknowledge our selfishness and sin before God, he will give us a greater grace to break this friendship with the world and overcome our selfish desires. But this is where the hard part starts because it's, it's your job, it's my job to dig deep into our hearts And see, where do my true cravings lie? What do I really want? Do I want to please myself? Do I have to say that thing that came to my mind because I just need to get this off my chest? Is it about you? Is it about what makes you feel good? Or is it about God? Don't make light of sin. Grieve over it. And then watch in amazement. As God lifts you up. We serve an amazing God who gives greater grace if we will humble ourselves before him, giving him the preeminence and saying, not my will, but yours.